This is Tom Rath, and you're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? I'm Tom Rath, and I I spend most of my time uh, doing research and looking at data and occasionally trying to pull that together into books that boil things down to some of the most practical elements for people. See, and I love in that intro, long-term listeners to the Leader Lab podcast are are basically going to say, based on that intro, why did I not interview Tom uh, beforehand? And the the truth is, uh, I've been a huge fan of your work for a really long time. I was telling you offline, I've even written... Uh, a scholarly article based on the strengths-based leadership model. And I love that approach of here's what the research says and here's what you need to know in a simple practical thing. That's what all of our listeners are about. That's what we're about. So Tom, welcome into the Leader Lab. I'm sorry it took so long to uh, to track you down, but I'm excited that we did on on this book. Um, the the new book, the future sixth New York Times bestseller and Wall Street Journal bestseller, is that, is that this is the sixth book you've done, right? So yeah, this is the sixth uh, kind of nonfiction business book. Calling it out in advance. We don't have the reports yet. We haven't even, we're recording this before the book's even launched officially, but I'm, ca- I'm going to go ahead and predict it in advance for you, unless I jinx it and then you can blame me. Um, I'll let you say it. I'm not going to. Ah, there we go. Perfect. So the, the new book, Are You Fully Charged? The Three Keys to Energizing Your Work and Life. I, I want to sort of um, dive into it, but I guess I should start with that sort of traditional, what made you transition from this? When I When I was reading it, there's a lot of things that are also in previous books of yours, like Eat, Move, Sleep, and Well-Being and that sort of thing. But this is a really cool framework, I think, for sort of the whole, uh, I, I, I struggle to use this term whole person because at the university I teach, that's what we talk about. But that's really what the book is sort of about, is how do you have that well-being, that energy, being fully charged in all sorts of areas of your life. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I feel like that was kind of one of the impetuses for the book. But what, what sort of motivated you to, to build this framework out in this book? Yeah, you know, this this book was a little bit more personal than some of the other business books that I've worked on in the past in that you know, I've spent all this time looking at research and what makes for effective leaders and kind of broad elements of well-being over time. But it, I mean, I'm just like a lot of us who we're still trying, I'm still trying to figure out how do I make a few changes in my day-to-day routine that really make a difference, not just for myself, but for other people as well. And so I've been asking myself that question just for the sake of kind of helping my friends and family members and the people I serve. And at the same time, the, a lot of the research that I'd followed and been a part of on uh, employee engagement and well-being over the years was based on asking people questions once in a while and say, asking people every few years to reflect on what they think of their life overall, which is relatively vague. And um, we don't even do that good of a job of remembering how we felt a week ago, let alone 10 years ago. So what I've been encouraged by in the last five years is researchers have really gone deep on this topic, what they call daily experience, and I'd call it daily well-being, where you ask people, um, now that we have the technology to do it, you ask people, what were you doing at 7.30 yesterday morning? Who were you with? How much did you enjoy it? Who were you with at 1.15? How much did you enjoy that? Were you engaged if you were at work? So forth. Um, And when you look at that real moment-to-moment well-being, it, it yields very different insights in terms of what practical changes we can make on a day-to-day basis to make a difference for people. And so the more I've gotten into that research, it's, it's also kind of inspiring in that when you look at well-being over a lifetime, it's got a, almost a perfect correlation with income. And it's got almost a perfect correlation when you look at rich countries and GDP per capita with those 
broad well-being metrics. But when you drill down and say, um, are people having fun today in Panama? Well, they're at the top of the list of all these countries, not Denmark or Sweden, like you see when you factor decades and wealth into it. Um, in fact, four of the top five countries in this daily experience list that Gallup put out are in the bottom half of wealth per capita on the IMF's list. So it's, it's also great to see that when you really talk about any person in the world, their ability to have a good day tomorrow, it's nowhere near as dependent on some of the historical baggage as other types of well-being I've studied. Well, and I think this is a brilliant um, sort of insight for me. So my, you know, my day job, I'm a management professor. And one of the things I love to harp on the sort of one of the grand closing speeches that senior students of mine kind of get is this idea that the, the old studies that said, oh, you know, it, it, money buys happiness, but only to about $70,000 a year. But now I think, you know, the day-to-day research, is like it depends. Are we talking about day-to-day well-being, enjoying your life? Because at that point, there's sort of no monetary correlation. So I love I absolutely kind of love those insights that what really comes from it is taking control of where you get energy, where you get uh, well-being, that sense of well-being. And you broke it down into three. I'm sure like this is probably the nth interview you've done and the, the you know, you've got an infinite number of more. So I'm going to throw you for a loop. The, the three keys you talk about are meaning, interactions, and energy. Maybe let's start and go backwards and let's start with energy. How, how does that sort of energy, making sure that we're making choices that actually, I mean, it seems like physical, but can actually have an effect on our mental well-being. Where does, how does that come into play? You know, I, I, I'm glad you mixed that up a little bit because ener- I think energy might be a better place to start. And in fact, we're, we're doing a documentary of energy and ends with meaning. Um, so I, I think you can take those in about any order. Um, and based on the conversations I've had, especially since the, the last book I worked on was called Eat, Move, Sleep, and it focused in on the physical part of energy. It didn't get into kind of the mental and stress and so forth like this new one does. But the the big takeaway for me on energy is that some of the hardest working, highest achieving people that I admire most in society day that I've spent time with since working on that book, they're the absolute worst at taking care of their own health and energy. And it's, it's a real problem because the hospice nurses I've spent time with, if, even if their only goal is to be as selfless as they possibly can be and be with a family at their most dire time of need or be with a patient when they need it most, they need to have the personal health and energy to be effective that afternoon with that family. And they almost have to put their health first in order to be good at what they do. And the same thing applies to business leaders, where if you have a business leader who is on email at 5 o'clock every morning and asking questions of employees at 1 in the morning as well, and he's uh, always just eating the wrong things and never getting up and moving around throughout the day or exercising at all, the, one, he there's no way he can be as effective as he needs to be as a manager or leader. And two, it just sends a terrible message to the rest of that leader's workforce. Hmm. And so the, the thing that um, I've, I've really learned uh, through a lot of conversation the last few years is that we've got to put energy first. And we've got to step back and ask the question that if you've got a, a pilot who needs to make a difficult landing at this little uh, Reagan airport here in D.C. tomorrow... I need him to have at least seven or eight hours sleep so that he can stay on the runway. Um, and if I've got a meeting the next day with uh, some people on a, working on a new project that requires some creative thought at 4.30 in the afternoon, if half the people in the room are either wiped out because they didn't get enough sleep or they um, had, a, had a real unhealthy bloating lunch, 
they're just not going to bring many ideas to the table, even if they do manage to stay awake. Yeah. I, by the way, I love that you hit on the notion of sleep as a, as a father of a three-year-old and a one-year-old, I can tell you exactly how, like, and remembering my life before them, I can tell you the effect that it has on overall well-being, just something as simple as sleep. And ironically, it produces that bloated lunch later, right? Because so often when we don't get a good enough sleep, we crave foods that are terrible for us, but are sort of, we feel like we're getting those hunger cravings. In reality, we don't need that much sugar. We need more sleep. Yeah, it's interesting the way those three things are so deeply intertwined, where if you get a short night's sleep, not only is your cognitive ability similar to being intoxicated, but you're far less likely to work out. You crave foods that are fried and have a lot of sugar, so you start eating poor things, and it starts this downward cycle. But the good thing is the exact opposite applies as well, where even if you've had a day where you were stressed out and you had bad interactions, you ate the wrong things, if you manage to get a good night's sleep. I've looked at a lot of research on this. It's, it's almost like the reset button on a video game or your smartphone where you get a clean slate the next morning and you can start to get a little bit more activity, be in a better mood, make better food choices, which makes it even easier to sleep well the next night. And so it starts an upward spiral that leads to progressively better days if you can do all three of those things really well in tandem. Well, and, and hopefully one of those things that gets uh, also caught up in that upward spiral, as it were, is another thing that's very dependent on choice, which is the kind of the second key, the interactions. Uh, second, either whether you're going forwards or backwards, right, because it's in the middle. But I think this was a really interesting one because we, uh, especially in the workplace, I don't think we're geared towards having our interactions with people in the right ratio. You you know, you actually talk about in the book there is a, there's a proper ratio or proper percentages of positive and negative moments or conversations that we need to be involved in, and most of us are doing it backwards. Yeah, you know, if you take your day and divide it into little uh, three-second slices just for the sake of conversation and measurement, we experience about 19,000 little micro-moments or three-second windows in a given day. And if you think about those, especially any of those windows that involve an interaction with another person, they're usually... You don't, might not notice it in the moment each time, but they're usually a little more positive or a little bit more negative. So I walk into an office building later today, and instead of letting the door slam in my face, someone pauses and turns around and holds the door. It helps me out a little bit. I, I continue in the door, and someone smiles and greets me and says hello. I go to get on the elevator, and someone sees me, but they go ahead and let the door shut. That So that takes you down a little bit. Um, and the challenge is those negative interactions with other people, the the bad ones just count a lot more than the good. So a negative charge carries more weight than a positive charge on average. And so for every one negative interaction you have, you need three, four, five positive ones just to get back to neutral to the point where you have kind of an even number of uh, happy and stressful moments in a given day. So the, what I talk about in the book, the simple uh, shortcut I use is just to try and make sure that at least 80% of my interactions throughout the day are more positive than negative overall. And, you know, when we ask people if most of their interactions yesterday were really positive, only I think it's about uh, 16% of people say that they were on average. So we're we're at least in a place where we're not focusing enough attention on how we can make the best out of each of those interactions on a day-to-day basis. And in reality, whether you're talking about, what's fascinating on this is whether you're talking about an interaction with a stranger or something as profound as your interactions with your spouse, just watching people interact like that is a great way to predict outcomes. So what got my attention on this 
many, many years ago, was uh, a guy named John Gottman studying uh, marriages. And he brought newlywed couples into his lab and just observed them behind the law and order glass for uh, 15 minutes and made predictions about whether they'd stay together or be divorced 10 years later based on based largely on that five to one ratio of positive versus negative interactions. And um, 10 years later, he was able to predict marriage versus divorce with uh, between 85 and 93% accuracy based on the ranges he looked at. And so that got my attention real quickly and other scientists in the workplace about, you know, if you can measure that in, in the context of our very closest relationship, does it apply in the workplace and with teams? And the answer is, it absolutely does. Hmm. Now, let me, because, so I, I look at the, the ratio or the equation, 20, 80%, 20%, and they, the little bit I remember from taking uh, math classes as an undergraduate student and, and statistics in grad school, et cetera, is that you can sort of change this ratio in two ways, right? So you can increase the number of positive interactions you have, which is one set of deliberate choices, or you can try and minimize the, the negative ones. I, I, I kind of want to ask it from a more personal standpoint, which, which one do you feel like is kind of more effective if I'm deliberately seeking out chances for positive interactions or if I'm trying to, to limit or cut out negative interactions or possibly negative people out of my life? Um, let me, it's, a, it's a heck of a question, a really good question and a good way to think about it. And I think um, one of the elements that's real important is how can you, much like you structure your day so you make better choices about food. So if you only have apples sitting out on your counter or mixed nuts, you're more likely to grab that than if you have a bowl of candy sitting out visibly, right? So if you structure your defaults, you make better decisions in general. There's a lot of good work on that. And I think we can structure our days and interactions to minimize the negatives as well. If you think about what are the points that usually result in a negative interaction or a stressful moment, how can you manage around that so it's less likely to occur on a day-to-day basis? So I do think that's a good place to start when you look at your days structurally. So that's one part of it. Now, back on the how do you create real positive interactions, um, I think we've all got an extraordinary opportunity right now to vastly improve the quality of our interactions, especially with our closest friends and colleagues and people who matter most, if we simply figure out how, if we remember how to pay attention, I should say. I think a lot of us knew when we were younger. Um, But if you look now at some of the numbers where people are on average unlocking their smartphones 100 times a day, and we all have, I mean, if you think about all the notifications and little alerts that um, grab our attention away from an important conversation when it might just be a uh, some celebrity breaking up and you get a breaking news alert on it or whatever. Um, it, it, I think we've got to rethink the the way we pay attention to the people who matter most so that I mean, there's a study we talk about in the new book where if I simply put my smartphone on the table, even if it's powered off and doesn't have any buzzing or dinging or lights, um, that sends a message that I'm putting something else ahead of you and I'm not paying as much attention to you. And it decreases both of our perceptions of the quality of the conversation. And so I, my my thought there is that in terms of real positive and meaningful interactions, we've all got an opportunity where if we can just focus a few times a day on someone we really care about and ask them a question about what's going on in their life and force ourselves to keep our mouth closed as long as possible and listen and make sure nothing's dinging or interrupting that, that's, that's a real profound thing that you can do for someone several times throughout a day. But we, we've almost taken it for granted. See, and I, as I was, it's funny that you bring this up because as I was uh, thinking about uh, looking forward to this interview today, 
I was thinking about the Apple Watch that I pre-ordered and wondering if that's going to make, according to, you know, are you fully charged, is this going to make it better or worse? Because from the energy standpoint, it's going to be a better. I, I mean, I wear a Fitbit, but I love, I don't wear it all the time because it's ugly. And the idea of having a watch that can do all of that stuff plus more, you know, I can track more things and help with the energy. But if I'm like the average human, I'm sure the notifications and the interactions on the watch are going to sort of ruin my interaction side. So I got to make sure that I get into the settings, I guess, and make sure that I'm getting the positive benefits and, and not the negatives. But You know, it's interesting you bring it up because I've, I've got one of those on pre-order as well. And a part of what uh, got me so excited about it is there's a great article in Wired Magazine a few weeks ago where they talked about how Apple hired one of Adobe's top people, I think his name's Kevin Lynch, to work with Johnny Ive on creating the watch. And they said their primary design case, the reason they were building the watch, was because we'd become so addicted to our smartphones that they were running our lives and they wanted to create something that gave us time back so we weren't always drawn into all of that. And so if that, that's what got me excited about it, is the promise of not interrupting you as much because unlike a lot of other uh, wearable devices, I've tried tons of them, um, the, you can tailor those notifications. And I think the, the default for a lot of us needs to be, as you were pointing out, that we say nothing should interrupt us unless it's real important or urgent or it's an emergency. And so then how do you go back and restructure, whether it's your notifications on your existing smartphone or the way you set things up if you start to wear a watch so that you're um, only receiving subtle messages when you need to and not pulling your phone out, which sends so many statements 100 times a day. Yeah, yeah I totally agree. And and I think I'm hoping that's what that's kind of what works. I think there's this sort of uh, awesome potential for both. But like I, I love I think I read the same article and I, I love that idea that sort of giving people some because I know that I use an iPhone very differently as far as for notifications than other people do, although it's still sort of addictive. So uh, ho hopefully that can sort of uh, leverage all of the positives uh, of the energy and the tracking and maybe even get some of that time back, which would be really quite cool. Yeah. Anything that can give us time back nowadays would be quite a gift. We'll see. Yeah, for sure. Well, so um, I, I guess this is a good transition to the third and final one of, of what do we do with that time, right? And I thought the, the other reason I wanted to go backwards is I feel like this is the biggest one as far as it doesn't necessarily take uh, simple day-to-day -day changes, that, but the day-to-day -day changes do accumulate into something big. This idea of meaning as a means to get charge in our work and in our life is a, is a huge one and I think sometimes can take uh, a lot of effort on the front end, but is still very, very doable. So let's talk a bit about meaning. Yeah, you know, the a lot of the work I got into on meaning started from, you know, I've been a part of the field studying well-being and happiness over the years, and there have been so many, there's been a lot of great research and a lot of books, articles on the topic of happiness and so forth. Um, but I do, I do think the more I've studied this, that um, that kind of pursuit of happiness that's built into the ethos of the American culture, at least, and was obviously stems from uh, Thomas Jefferson's words in the Declaration of Independence. I think pursuing our own happiness might actually do more harm than good um, and potentially be kind of dangerous as a pursuit if it's just to make yourself happy. And there's there's so much good work coming out lately suggesting that, you know, even if your only goal is to improve well-being, the best way to make that happen is not to sit around and work on your own happiness all day. It's to do some things that help other people. And then eventually that comes around and helps you in return and makes your social networks and your community a little more vibrant in the process. So that, that, the first thing that focused my attention on meaning is that um, 
it appears to be distinct from happiness. Now, there's always overlap, but those appear to be two distinct constructs that um, are important and measurable. And meaning, meaning sure looks like it's going to turn out to be the much richer of the two. And so if, if you get into meaning, what's the other thing that surprised me there is I think a lot of us have had those notions of meaning as some um, higher level concept that descends from the heavens and takes a long time to find a big purpose in life. And the, as I started to read some of the research on this topic, a, a great book called The Progress Principle that might be the best on this specific piece, um, it's really these little meaningful wins in the process of a normal workday that create most of the well-being and meaning and satisfaction in our careers and the things that we do on a day-to-day basis. So it's, I mean, if you work in a call center and someone calls in and they're irate about something and you bring them around to the point where they're about back to neutral and they no longer carry their anger forward and ruin many other people's day, that's a meaningful win. Um, I'm, I, I've got a couple small kids as well. And my daughter's uh, six and learning to read. And if she identifies a new word when I'm reading a book to her tonight, that's a little meaningful victory for me that does carry forward and it makes a difference for her. And I get great satisfaction out of it. Um, and I, I think the challenge for us is, you know, when we ask people if they did a lot of meaningful work yesterday, 10,000 people, uh, only 20% said yes. And I, my hunch is that only 20% are identifying that they did a lot of meaningful work yesterday. I bet most people do. We just don't take the time to either step back and acknowledge it or connect it with the difference it's making for another person. And I, I love that concept, by the way, of pursuit of happiness, sure, but pursuit of their happiness is what will ultimately bring your happiness. It's sort of, I mean, it, it, the management professor in me is thinking about an old article called On the Folly of Hoping for A While Rewarding B, but that's essentially kind of, in this case, is what works, right? Going after seeking meaningfulness and to be a help and assistant in somebody else's life. And then, and then of course, also, I love the idea of small wins. We actually, way back when the progress principle was on, we had Teresa on, on the show. It's been one of my favorite. It's sort of a sleeper or, or cult hit book, right? Everybody, oh, yeah. everybody I've talked to that, that has heard of it loves it. And I just wish, you know, after, maybe as the second book to add in their cart on Amazon to get the free shipping, that's what we should do is make sure you pick up a copy of the progress principle as well because Teresa's it's, book is great. It's some exceptional research and a really good book, yeah. So, um, spe- speaking of books, I mean, you, the book, your book, newest book again is "Are You Fully Charged: The Three Keys to Energizing Your Work and Life." We have a couple questions we ask everybody that comes in into the Leader Lab. The first is right, right there on books. What are you reading right now? Um, you know, I, I'm reading a lot of books that uh, people have sent me to check out in the in the last uh, in the last few weeks that are uh, pre-publication books. I'm trying to think. Oh, one that I've read that's available in the next few months and now is uh, Work Rules by Laszlo Bach, the Google's chief of people. Hmm. And, you know, for anyone who's in management, or especially if you think about hiring people at all, it's it's probably one of the best books I've read on those topics in at least a decade. And it's, it's for there are a lot of business books by by business leaders that don't that have ideas and stories, but they but he actually gets into the real good academic research from IO psychology about hiring and so forth. And so the researcher in me is, is deeply impressed by that. Um, another book I've read recently that I'm now reading a draft of his, his next upcoming book is um, a book called Die Empty by Todd Henry. Oh it's yeah, a, Todd's a, an old friend a, of ours. Yeah, it's a it's a real good book that on a on a personal level that book really stirred me to. Um, keep having 
even more intensity about what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. And I thought he had some real good ways to just think about the importance of your daily work in that book. Yeah. Yeah. Todd. So I think we interviewed Todd for Accidental Creative, Die Empty, Louder Than Words is the book that he's uh, coming out with soon. And I'm sure he'll be on the podcast too. So that gives everybody who's listening something to look forward to for sure. Um, It actually is a good transition, speaking of looking forward to, into our final question that we ask everybody. It's, It's rare that I actually know the answer to this question, Tom, but in your case, I do because you're working on a ton of stuff. Um, one of which we met was the Silicon Guild, but you're also working on some other projects that are in line with this book. So, uh, Tom, what's next for you? Yeah, you know, this this uh, book has been an interesting one for me because we we started a few years ago and we asked the question, you know, if, we, if there's some important research here that people need to hear about, um, what's the best way to meet people where they are right now? And um, obviously over the years, Nonfiction books have been the primary way that I've done that, but I always try to be really open to the fact that um, most of what I've done is pretty, is wrong in some cases, and I can learn a lot of new things. And so um, I, we're also trying a documentary that'll be titled "Fully Charged" and features a lot of the top researchers who are uh, their research is featured in the book, in the documentary, and a lot of other stories to try and reach a, a different audience. There, I've noticed that. Um, over the last five years in particular, more and more people are turning to real credible and well-done documentaries as a source of information just because of services like iTunes and Netflix. And television's gotten so good, it probably draws people in, too. Um, and we also just published a, a children's book that feeds into this theme of fully charged. It's called The Rechargeables, and it's about the eating, moving, and sleeping elements for kids between the ages of three and eight. And um, it's it, that's a project that honestly we just did because our, our team felt there was such a need in classrooms where, I mean, ironically, it shouldn't be this way, but kids just spend their entire days sitting down in little chairs that kind of sap their energy and don't think about the importance of moving around. And obviously we've got big problems with the way kids are eating right now. And um, I, I'm learning as a parent of young kids how important it is to help them understand the importance and value of sleep. So sleep is something that you should be thankful for and kind of a sacred family value, not a punishment that you have to go to sleep when you do things wrong. Um, So we've gotten into those two projects of reaching out to kids and people who uh, might not read a nonfiction book around the fully charged theme. And then you you mentioned the Silicon Guild, which is a group that I've been working with a, a partner of mine and uh, Peter Sims, who, who's a mutual friend of ours, and Ori Brofman, who've done an amazing job of pulling together some of the best thinkers and nonfiction authors across the country. And the the really fun concept and intent they've had there is that uh, as a group of authors out, out there in the country, we're just a lot better off working together more, collaborating more, and sharing ideas and resources than we are working in isolation. And uh, for a guy like me, who's more introverted and probably wouldn't have uh, reached out to all these people I admire so much in the first place. That's been a lot of fun. And I think we'll have some really cool things coming out of that group soon. Yeah, I, I totally agree. As you, as you said, Peter's a mutual friend of ours and, and a lot of folks in the, uh, in that are in the Silicon Guild are friends of the leader lab. And so it's a, it's a really cool, what powerful things happen when people with great ideas start collaborating together. So we're looking forward to some new stuff down the road from that. I'm also, I'm looking forward to the documentary too. I mean, I, I think Netflix is the, the trigger for this, but Netflix got me so interested in 
all of these different. There are documentaries I wish were books, and there are books that I wish were documentaries. One of those books was is Are You Fully Charged? And so I'm excited that there's a documentary uh, around the themes of the book coming out. So we'll be looking forward to that. And obviously, we'll be tweeting on that. We might, you know, we might even post the trailer on the because uh, I know the trailer is available. We'll post it on the show notes for this podcast episode, along with links to to all of that. So in the meantime, though, the book that is out uh, now to check out, Are You Fully Charged? The Three Keys to Energizing Your Work and Life. Tom, I, I'll jinx it. I won't jinx it because you're not saying it, but I'll say it for you. Tom's uh, sixth best-selling business book for sure. I know that because I've read it and it's going to be awesome. Word will spread. And so anything we can do to help spread that word, we're doing. So in the meantime, though, Tom, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. Thanks so much. It's been fun and a pleasure.